Good evening, and I welcome you back, Nanette. It has not been that long since we saw you, and now we're in practice period. So, welcome, and good to see you again so soon. And to be launching our practice period, which I've really been looking forward to, and hoping that many of you will join and more, many and more. So last night um, we got back from Florida where I was officiating my son's wedding and we brought COVID home with us. So I probably, um, this will probably be a little shorter of a talk. Um, <laughs> somehow we got through most of uh, most of this pandemic well, but it's our turn, I guess. So we're here. And um, I, this just occurred to me, this irony of uh, this Vimalakirti Sutra in which the main character is sick because the whole world is sick. And that's like this main theme that runs throughout. And so I thought, wow, well, literally, at this moment, literally, I am sick because the whole world is sick. So yeah, just asking your forbearance um, and still really looking forward to kind of um, spending some time this evening look at, looking at um, a bit about why this, this sutra is so important, the historical context a bit about the arc of the story, which is this wonderful grand storyline. And then um, a few of the main themes and then briefly taking up the theme that we'll talk about in our first class on Saturday, is that right? Saturday or Sunday? Sunday. On Sunday evening. Um, of uh, the purity of um, the Buddha lands and purifying the Buddha lands. And there's this whole beautiful little context. So um, first, just to say that this sutra is very influential um, text in the Mahayana canon, especially for Chan Buddhism. And I can't think of a a major Mahayana teaching that isn't in this skinny little sutra. It's just every conversation, um, every one of the disciples that refuses to go to see Vimalakirti because they had this particular conversation is another teaching and another teaching and another teaching. So um, particularly focuses on the Bodhisattva ideal and then also gives teachings about expedient means, non-dualism, emptiness, wisdom, and compassion. And wonderful that these teachings are given by this wealthy layperson, which it's, it's set in Shakyamuni's time and the central character being a wealthy layperson. And so, all of these teachings are brought in by him in the context of his life as, a, as this wealthy layperson. 
And um, it's very operatic and fantastical. Um, lots of fantastical characters and goddesses and dragons and um, we'll also talk about how they fit in. So this, this sutra was probably written around 100 CE and it was an important text um, in the context of this time of the Mahayana the Buddhism at that time emphasizing home leavers, the importance of home leaving and wandering in order to awaken and escape the wheel of birth and death. So basically, <clears throat> the goal was to reach Arhat status and get out of Dodge. That, that's what freedom was suffering from suffering was all about in that context. And so at that time, various sects appeared and the, the derogatory term for this lesser vehicle Hinayana was criticized by the Mahayana movement, um, which started around the first or second century CE. And these Mahayana teaches, teachings, they reached a wider audience, but I think um, more importantly for us is the shift from the individual's quest to be free from suffering to the less self-centered focus of concern for all beings. And the bodhisattva ideal at the center of that, the vow to remain and relieve the suffering of others in this world until all beings awaken. And practices for those who are ready and willing to turn back to the world and serve, or as one of the ways that Joan Sutherland um, names this in her book, she says, choose your life and keep choosing your life day by day and find peace there. In other words, here, here. So, um, for the big picture storyline, please do your best to imagine an operatic setting. And it begins uh, scene one in Amra Gardens in Basali, where there are gathered to hear the Buddhist teachings, 8,000 monks, 32,000 bodhisattvas who knew how to roar the lion's roar and um, 10,000 Brahma kings and 12,000 Indras and dragons and spirits and yakshas and on and on. This huge gathering in these beautiful gardens. And um, near the end of this description of all these beings who are gathered, there are um, wealthy princes who come in with jeweled parasols and kind of like with a wave of his hand, the Buddha turns all their individual jewel parasols into a huge canopy covering the gardens of these, um, of a large jewel parasol. So Buddha gives some original teachings in that setting. 
And then being aware that Vimala Kirti lies on his sick bed nearby. <clears throat> the next part of the story, the Buddha requests that Shariputra go see him and inquire about his illness. And let me just read very quickly this um, the description of this. Because each, so all of the disciples, many bodhisattvas, one by one. I mean, here's the Buddha, right? You don't say no to the Buddha. The Buddha says, please go see Vimalakirti and inquire after his health. Um, and I'll give you Shariputra's response as an example. He says, world honored one, I'm not competent to visit him and inquire about his illness. Why? Because I recall one occasion in the past when I was sitting in quiet meditation under a tree in the forest. And then he recounts the teaching that Vimala, the correction basically that Vimala Kirti gave him about what quiet, quiet sitting means. And that um, he said, Vimala Kirti says, Shariputra, you should not assume that this sort of sitting is true quiet sitting. Quiet sitting means that in this threefold world, you manifest neither body nor will. This is quiet sitting, not rising out of your samadhi of complete cessation, yet showing yourself in the ceremonies of daily life. This is quiet sitting. So right, you know, in that first little teaching from Vimalakirti is about getting up and walking, you know, the walking your talk, basically. Um, so there's a whole succession of disciples and bodhisattvas saying, oh, I can't go inquire after his health because we had this encounter and I looked stupid and here's the teaching. But many teachings in these first um, two chapters that are rolled out in that way. And um, finally, Manjushri, agrees to go. And so after all these people and disciples and bodhisattvas saying, oh, you know, he's too much for me. When Manjushri decides to go and inquire about Vimala Kirti's illness, of course, the whole throng of beings and priests and bodhisattvas are like, this is gonna be good, right? This is gonna be a good conversation. These are gonna be good teachings so they all come up out of this um, beautiful, adorned, um, lush setting of the gardens to Vimalakirti's sick room, which is a 10 by 10 cell with no furniture, just a bed and Vimalakirti. And so a lot of the, the, the next scene takes place in the sick room um, they do go to a few other worlds from the sick room and magical beings appears. But one of the first thing that happens in this bare sick room um, where Vimalakirti lies ill because all the world is ill is um, Shariputra, who is the fall guy again says, well, everyone fits of course in the 10 by 10 sick room, these throngs. But then um, Shariputra says, well, where are we all gonna sit? You know, he's looking around. And Vimalakirti says, 
Did you come for a seat or did you come for the teachings? So you can see that this, that why no one wanted to come and inquire about his health. But um, um, many of the teachings that unfold are in this conversation with some of it with Manjushri, Shariputra, some with um, other bodhisattvas and beings that are in the sick room. But Vimalakirti reveals that he's sick because all living beings are sick and that the illness of the bodhisattva, his illness, and the illness of the bodhisattvas in general arise from their great compassion. Um, and then finally, there's lots of things that happen in the room, but you have to uh, stay tuned with us during practice period to hear them roll out. And then finally, the scene shifts back to the Amra Gardens where Vimalakirti and Manjushri join Shakyamuni Buddha. And there's a, some further discussion of teachings and more magic. So there are a lot of big themes and questions that are wonderful to explore. And one of them is, and this isn't the only sutra that has so much grandiosity and magic is why, you know, like not to just write it off as some historical, well, this is how they told stories in that time, but actually um, what about all these mythological beings and magical powers and do we just kind of ignore them um, or is there something to be learned from them? And uh, we'll explore this more later on, but Joan Sutherland in her commentary hints that, that, yes, in fact, it's not to believe in the magic, but it's also not to believe in the limitations of our conditioned view and the suggestion of this absolute freedom from limitations of space and time. And another question, that I'd love to explore during these weeks is, so there are the Mahayana teachings of emptiness, non-duality, compassion and wisdom. How do we encounter them in such a way that we bring them into our everyday lives? And Vimalakirti being a layperson um, demonstrates in many ways how we can do this. Um, also a major theme of samsara as nirvana and nirvana as samsara. And then the very pervasive question in this sutra and in our time of how do we find peace in the midst of our vow to meet suffering beings? How do we find peace there? And how, how, do, we, how do we keep showing up? So, <clears throat> I'm just going to explore one little thread, which we will take up again in our upcoming class. But um, it, when they're still in the gardens, jeweled accumulation, which is kind of the head honcho prince of all the princes with their parasols, has a beautiful poem and he praises many qualities of the Buddha. Um, and at the end of that poem, he asks, asks the Buddha to explain the practices carried out by bodhisattvas in purifying lands. The 
the Buddha says, if the Bodhisattva wishes to acquire a pure land, he must purify his mind. When the mind is pure, the Buddha land would be pure. And um, <clears throat> like many of our words that we hear and turn in our minds, this word pure, you know, what is, what is that? What is a pure land and what is a pure mind? Uh, and just before, about an hour before this class, I was listening to a talk um, by Angel Kyoto Williams. She's going to be teaching on the Lojong slogans this weekend, um, Saturday and Sunday, via Zoom in Upaya. And she was, something that she said, um, she was talking about transforming the mind in terms of having the clarity and commitment to be whole, clarity and commitment to be whole. And so I think we can see pure as whole also. And whole as all inclusive and definitely not pure as pure on the one hand and impure on the other, but all inclusive. So if the Bodhisattva wishes to acquire a pure land, he must purify his mind. And the pure land is created by living the teachings, by the activities of benefiting beings. The act, those activities, engaging in those activities is the pure land itself. And um, to me, when I really bring in the mind of walking the path and engaging in the activities of the Buddha, I can see that very clearly as the pure land. I mean, I, I get caught over and over again about, you know, looking out in the world and going, you know, how can we say loving the world as it is? Why do we keep talking about that? Look at the world, look at the suffering. And this, um, later in this chapter, this uh, same conversation unfolds, but if the pure land is what we create by living the teachings, then yes, then yes, I can make sense to me. So let me read a little bit about um, from the sutra itself about the Bodhisattva's acquisition of a pure land. The Buddha says, the Bodhisattva's acquisition of a pure land is holy due to his having brought benefit to living beings. And then he goes through this whole list um, of all the things that are the pure land of a Bodhisattva. So he says, an upright mind is the pure land of a Bodhisattva, a deeply searching mind, a mind that aspires to Bodhi or enlightenment almsgiving, keeping the precepts, forbearance, 
meditation, wisdom. All, he lists all these things that are the activities of the path as being the pure land. And then he says, therefore jeweled accumulation because the Bodhisattva has an upright mind. He is impelled to action. Because he's impelled to action, he gains a deeply searching mind. And then goes, goes again, because he transfers merit to others, he knows how to exploit expedient means because he knows how to exploit, employ expedient means. He can lead others to enlightenment. Therefore, if a bodhisattva wishes to acquire a pure land, he must purify his mind. So in comes Shariputra, our fall guy, and he says, well, since the world honored one's intentions were pure, then why is this Buddha land filled with impurities? The question I just brought up. Shariputra, this land of mine is pure, but you fail to see it. Shariputra says, when I look at this land, I see it full of knolls and hollows, thorny and underbrush, sand and gravel, dirt, rocks, many mountains, filth and defilement. It's like, I don't see a pure land here. Right? One of the Brahma kings says, it's just that your mind has highs and lows and does not rest on Buddha's wisdom. Just that your mind has highs and lows and does not rest on Buddha's wisdom. Shariputra, the Bodhisattva, treats all things and beings, each one of them, with perfect equality. Because his mind is pure, it can see the purity of this Buddha land. And particularly this sentence, the Bodhisattva treats all things and beings, each one with per perfect equality. If you think about that, how, how can impurities exist actually, if you're regarding all things and beings with equality? There can't be purity and impurity. Then back to the opera, the Buddha presses his toe against the earth and the whole land becomes a jeweled adornment land. And the Buddha says, if a person's mind is pure, he will see the wonderful blessings that adorn this land. This whole um, conversation about the pure land recalled for me um, Catherine's teaching of loving the world as it is. And then the next step for me in understanding loving the world as it is, not as a passive sitting back and saying, okay, I accept this world, loving the world as it is, as the activity of bringing love to the world as it is. The activity of bringing love to the world as it is. And that's to treat all phenomenon with freedom and it's a choice. 
It's a choice. So um, to honor my lousy health and my failing voice, I'm just going to read one more, one more thing to end, um, which is a very uplifting passage from, <clears throat> from Joan Sutherland. And it's actually after she's been talking about um, this pure land. And she says, one of the profound beauties of the Mahayana vision is a sense that we human bodhisattvas aren't doing this alone. Everything in the world is engaged in the work of awakening. Everything is its own kind of bodhisattva. Cow bodhisattva, fool's gold bodhisattva, scuffed slipper bodhisattva, do you imagine the right slipper and the left one each has its own bodhisattva path? At the end of the sutra, Shakyamuni calls this infinite collaborative effort the work of the Buddhas. Infinite collaborative effort. In some worlds, radiant light does the work. In others, it might be gardens, groves, towers, clothing, food, the body, empty space, dreams, metaphors, words, silence, even the 84,000 earthly desires. In other words, pretty much anything. So we particularly human expressions of bodhisattvas have all these comrades to help us with our impossible promise to the world. Okay. So, Jean, do we want to open up for comments? Do you want to have your usual uh, announcements first? Yes, thank you. I'm impressed and touched that you are doing this while not feeling well. And I hope this passes quickly for you both. Thank you. Just a few announcements, and then we'll open to those who need to leave. And um, on the very near horizon, this Saturday is Sangha Day for those who are able to go and do some work together. And as you've heard me say, it's it's not it it is about doing work. There is work to do, but it's more about let's be together in this informal way of interacting taking care of the temple as bodhisattvas you know this is the work of the temple grounds this is one of the practices of turning to the world to serve and uh next week there is a board meeting on tuesday evening you know you don't have to have an agenda item or something that you need to say you could just come to the board meeting via zoom and say thank you to the board members for holding the the responsibility of the practical part of Zen Center. I'm sure they would like to hear that. Next week I'll give a talk that will parallel what Nanette has done this evening. And remember that this Sunday and the following Sunday are both class evenings via Zoom only. Are there any community announcements that I've dropped out? All right, then for those who need to leave at this time to take care of family and pets and so on, you're welcome to take leave. 
And Nanette, if you can stick around for maybe 10 minutes and entertain some conversation, that would be helpful, I'm sure, to everyone. Thank you. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it.